Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. It's gonna be my voice here that's saying a prayer, but let it be your heart that joins me to make this prayer your own. Lord Jesus, put us back on that mission to make you known. Lord Jesus, we get so distracted by so many things. Only one thing is needed, to know you and to make you known. So Lord Jesus, put us back on that mission to make disciples, to know you, to make you known. And Lord Jesus, now in this moment, as we open your word, assembled together as the church, Lord Jesus, there are strongholds in our minds. There are wrong ideas that we protect because they make us happy. And we need your word to break down these strongholds and to change what we believe and so change our lives by the power of your spirit and the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus, in your name, amen. So to come up with a song title to match this sermon, there are many songs with the word believe in the title. And if I was a younger man, I could have found something more contemporary from Post Malone or somebody like that. But because I'm not a younger man, and we all know that the best music was all written and performed in the 70s and 80s, the song title is the song that was the number one song for five weeks in a row in 1978. What a fool believes. What a fool believes. It's a, it's a great lick, and once you hear it, it kind of becomes a worm ear, and you can't forget it. It was performed by the Doobie Brothers. It was written by Michael McDonald and a co-writer. It's a good trivia question if you know who co-wrote the song. It's a guy that doesn't get a lot of credit, but he has written like as many number one songs as just about anybody else. This song was co-written by, it was sung by Michael McDonald, co-written by McDonald, and you don't even know, do you? Kenny Loggins was the co-writer. The conceit of the song is a very common theme. Guy likes girl. It doesn't work. He doesn't even get a shot. Then 10 years, 20 years go by, and Guy sees same girl, and he makes himself believe, oh, it didn't work then, but surely it'll work now. And so the first lines of the song, he came from somewhere back in her long ago, trying to recreate what had yet to be created. It hadn't even worked the first time. And now, because he has these wishes and these feelings in his mind, he's trying to make something happen that didn't happen the first time. And we all know who are singing the song, it's got a zero chance of working the second time. And then I find the chorus of the song that they keep coming back to, I find it deeply theological. And I don't know where Michael McDonald was theologically. I guess, judging from some of his other songs, he was not where he was supposed to be. But this is, you you can't get this lyric without thinking how true this is of a theology of the human heart. 
because the chorus keeps going back to this line, what a fool believes, no wise man has the power to reason away. What seems to be is in the heart of the fool, always better than the nothing that is. Every human heart has the way that we want things to be, the way we wish things were. And it's so hard to reason somebody out of that wishing and that wanting. James writes James chapter two because he is very convinced that there are some, perhaps many in the church, who have a wish in their heart about what saving faith is, and they want to believe it at that level. But he's trying to snap them into the reality of just because you wish something was saving faith, it doesn't mean that it is. And so James makes his point like any good teacher makes her or his point with these pictures that make what the teacher is saying unmistakable in real life because the picture is so clear. The first picture is of a guy who's cold and hungry. And somebody just says, be warm and be filled, but the cold person doesn't become warm and the hungry person doesn't become filled. The second picture is of a demon who is quaking in horror. The third picture, verses 21 to 24, is of Abraham, who is so loyal to God that he's called the friend of God. And the fourth picture, marvelously, is of a non-Israelite, a woman who runs a house of ill repute. And she turns her back on her way of life and on her country so that she too can be a friend of God. And as a good teacher, after every one of those pictures, James lands his point with like an exclamation point. So you can't miss the point of the picture. So the picture of the hungry person ends in verse 17, where James says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And the picture of the demon ends in verse 20, and he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he, sh he ends the picture of Abraham in verse 24 with a verse that, Lord willing, we'll look at this one next week. It can be misunderstood. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And then he ends the picture of Rahab in verse 26, for as with this unmistakable punchline, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. What clear teaching about just because a fool believes that their faith is okay doesn't make it sufficient. So let's read together verse 18, 19, and 20. That's where we'll focus this morning. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless, he says. This is a passage that is meant to clear up misunderstandings about faith. And yet this passage can easily lead to misunderstandings about faith. 
And so at the outset, I want to kind of guard you away from getting this passage wrong. You're going to get everything about this passage wrong, and you're basically going to get everything in your own spiritual life wrong. If you take this, as James is writing to tell you all of the works that you have to do to get saved, it'll never add up. James is writing not to tell you the works you have to do to be saved. James is writing to show you once you are saved, these are the works that we're going to see in your life. We just heard from, as we came to the table of the Lord and the living bread, they asked Jesus in John chapter 6, I just read it, they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, the work of God is this, believe in the one whom God has sent. Faith itself comes first. And then the good works of faith flow from faith. It is not a situation where all the good works make us saved. Faith comes first, and then come all the good works that follow. Living faith. James is not telling you how to save yourself by your works. James insists that faith saves. But James is saying, don't be a fool about what faith is. That's what James is trying to get at. Don't be a fool about what faith is. The thing that James says that the demons believe in verse 19, he sarcastically says, good job, guys. You do well in verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe that. You know where that comes from? God is one. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And even there, in the first Old Testament iteration of it, faith comes first and then the works of faith. Because Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Believe in God. And then, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. These words I command you shall be on your mind. As you walk along the road, you'll obey them. As you're in your house, you'll obey them. You'll keep them on your forehead so they control your thoughts. But even there in Deuteronomy, faith comes first and then the works of faith. So I mention that to say, don't take these paragraphs from James and turn James into some kind of like a, like a weird blogger or YouTuber who has his own take on things and he's just sort of making this strange thing about how important works are. Uh, that's not the case. The fact that faith comes first and then faith always shows itself in works of love, that is baked in from Moses right on through every book of the Bible. This is no aberration that true faith obeys. If you wanted to, you could take a verse or two from James 2 out of context and you could say, well, Paul says, like for instance in Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace through faith and not by works. But James says in James 2, you're saved by works. You're only going to get this wrong if you take it out of context. You know, all I, we talk about interpreting things in context, but this week you, you saw this if you watch the news like I do. Not, not that I would wish the curse of watching the news, but it, it, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, 
basically all the big social media platforms were on the hook this week because they're flagging political ads as false and refusing to show them. And what they're saying is, well, what that ad says about Joe Biden or the words that that ad have Donald Trump saying are taken out of context. And that makes it false. And that's why we're not going to show it. The only way to get James to teach that you have to do works to save yourself is to take James out of context and make him say something that he's not saying. Years ago, when I first wrestled with this passage, the pastor in my life who was teaching it to me said, don't, don't look at it like Paul is saying grace, not works, saves. And James is saying works, save, like they are in a sword fight with each other. He said, look at it like James and Paul completely agree and they stand on the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. And they're standing back to back and they're each swinging a sword. But the reason they sound different is because Paul is swinging his sword at the enemies of the gospel who are coming from this side. And James is swinging his sword at the enemies of the gospel who are coming from that side. And Paul is swinging his sword at the legalism that's saying, you have to do a bunch of works in order to be saved. And Paul is just whacking away at those guys saying, no, it's by grace through faith. James is in agreement with Paul about the nature of the gospel and the work of Christ. But he is swinging his sword, not at legalism, but at license, which says, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as you say, I believe, you're fine even if your life is filled with terrible works and no works that honor God. But they both agree that salvation is by grace through faith. And what we're getting at is, what is living faith? James is here saying, you can't credibly say that you're saved if there's no agreement with God in your life. There's no good works in your life. Paul is saying, you can't say you're saved if you're trusting in your own works. You can only trust in Jesus. But they're in agreement. They're in agreement. James' point is only a fool believes that faith can be so dead that it doesn't have any works and still count on that being saving faith. That's wishful thinking. But that's trying to recreate what had yet to be created. It's nothing that's ever going to happen. So let's look real particularly here at verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I want to show you, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. We have faith and we have works. We have faith that is shown in works. Somebody put it like this, and I think it's kind of beautiful. Faith is obedience at home, resting and looking to the Lord in love and trust. Obedience is faith out the front door and on the road and every step of the way looking to the Lord in love and trust. Faith is obedience at home, 
resting and looking to the Lord in love and trust. But obedience is faith on the road, walking every step, loving and trusting the Lord. And even the demons, he says here, have a form of faith. We could do a sort of a literary look at the demons being the enemies of God, verse 18, and then Abraham, verse 23, is called the friend of God. You can have a form of faith and still be an enemy of God. But in order to be called the friend of God, you have to have a faith that, is, that shows a loyalty and a belonging to God that the demons will never have. What do we believe about demons? What do we believe about angels? The Bible teaches, and we believe, that there are real beings around us, and we can't see them. But that doesn't make them not real. They are real. Angels. The angels are in two categories. Angels who are the way they were created, they're holy, and so they worship God, and they serve God, and they go around protecting God's people and accomplishing God's purposes and doing God's will. But then the other category of angels are the angels who are no longer the way they were created by God, but they have twisted and perverted and corrupted themselves and so they're fallen, and we call them demons. And they harass God's people and try to oppress God's people and work against God's plans from their sinful motivation. When were angels created? You know, the specifics of creation are very detailed in Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to know when rocks were created, when um, Puffer fish were created, when clouds were created, when gazelles were created. If you have questions about women and men and what man doesn't have questions about women and what woman doesn't have questions about men, all of that, it shows up very clearly in Genesis 1 and 2. But it actually doesn't say anything there about the creation of angels. So throughout, throughout the history of the church, Teachers have written hundreds and thousands of pages about the creation of angels. I don't know why they're doing that, except that they want to sell a new book that nobody else has ever sold before, but there's just not that much in the Bible about it. There's like, there's like one reference in Job 38, which is an allusion in a poetic reference about the morning stars and creation, and maybe that has something to do with the creation of angels. But all we know from right biblical inference is that God created all that is in those seven days and angels are created. They're not eternally existent. So God created them somewhere in there. We also know significantly that angels aren't redeemable. They can sin, but they cannot be saved from sin. They... They fell, but it is as if when they fell, God by his silence said, that's that. But you know, when my father and yours, when my mother and yours, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, immediately God said, where are you? 
And then he said, come out at that hiding and come talk with me. And then God said, I will send you a savior. He made us so that he could redeem us. But the angels don't have that. We also know that there's such a thing as demon possession. Christians often ask me, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? The answer to that question is no. Once you are in Christ, when the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, the Holy Spirit of God does not vacate so that a demonic spirit can take over. You cannot be controlled or possessed by a demon if you're in Christ. You could be tempted. You could even be um, afflicted or accused, but you can never be controlled or possessed. And then we know from the Gospels, this is kind of, it would make sense, that the cases of demonic activity had a certain spike point. If you, again, I wouldn't wish the news on anybody, but if you, any night you turn on the news, the first thing they're going to show is the number of COVID cases and where is it spiking in this county or that city or whatever. If we, if we took the, if we took the cases of demonic activity throughout the history of the universe, we would all agree the spike point was those three years of the public ministry of Jesus the Nazarene. And the demons revealed that they knew who Jesus was. It's pretty humbling and kind of awesome that in, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, when people show up at the beginning of the gospel, they're like, huh, what's going on? But the angels declare who Jesus is. The unfallen angels declare it to the glory of God in excelsis Deo. And the fallen angels declare exactly who Jesus is. Look at Mark chapter 1. You'll see it. It's dramatic the way that it happens. The very first chapter of the gospel of Mark. Mark 1, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. So this man is possessed by a demon, and when it says he cried out, it is the vocal cords of the man, but it is the demon who is stating what is being said on, those, on the vibrations of those human vocal cords. He cried out, what have you to do with us? The demonic, the fallen demons. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Latin would translate that credo, I believe. The demon says, I believe, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. It is what the demons say 
and what Jesus does that cause this wildfire of response to Jesus. This is astonishing that the demons know who Jesus is. So the demons believe. They know. But their belief, James says, causes them to, the ESV translates it, last word of James 2, verse 19, their belief causes them to shudder. This is an interesting word. It's a fun word to say in the Greek language because it is onomatopoetic. The, the Greek word is frisusion. They get frizzy and shaky. This word is used in Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, when uh, human beings would walk through the forest at night and there would be a, uh, a dark force in the forest that would scare them and the hair on their neck would stand up. That's what this verb means, for your hair to, to, get, to, to get frizzy and stand up on your arms because you're, you're shaking. Well, demons don't have hair. They don't have arms. But demons shudder. I, I want to say demons have seen enough to know who Jesus is, but even that is a metaphor because demons don't have eyes. Demons know directly, spiritually. We are the ones that have to make the difference between what our eyes see and what we really believe and know. The demons know it directly, spiritually. And yet, it only causes them to shudder and tremble, either in rage against who Jesus is or in horror and fear at who Jesus is and what that means for their destiny. To the extent that they know the power of God they know that they are not at peace with God, so they hate that or they're horrified by it. If that is demonic faith, but it's the same word for faith, I believe, you believe, what is living faith? What is true faith? Well, it, it, we, can't go, we can't go far without getting this, this load-bearing word show in verse 18. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That word show is a big word. It means demonstrate, exhibit, make clear and undeniable. And James is like insultingly and sarcastically saying in the first half, if you try to make demonstrable your faith without any works, you'll never be able to do that but I will be able to demonstrate genuine faith by works because faith is obedience resting in God and then as soon as it goes out onto the highway of life, faith looks like obedience to God. So what is genuine faith? To give you a definition, uh, classic theology, reformed theology, our theology takes, takes uh, three elements of saving faith. There's, I'm going to give you three uh, Latin terms, uh, like it doesn't matter to me if you know, if you get the Latin spelled right, but I'm just saying I'm not like arrogant enough to think that 800, uh, 1200 years of Orthodox church history like doesn't mean anything anymore. I think these three categories have served the church well, and I think they'll serve us well even this morning. 
The three are, uh, the first one is noticia, and we have the English word notice, like it's information. The first one is noticia, information. The second one is a census, and we have the uh, English word um, to give assent to or to agree with. Noticia, knowledge or information, a census, which is like an acceptance or an agreement with. And then the third one is fiducia. And we even have the English word fiduciary, which is probably chiseled in granite in your bank somewhere, like this is a fiduciary organization, which means uh, the personal entrustment. I give them my, my goods and my money. It's personal entrustment. You could almost transfer these into the first one being head knowledge, the second one being heart agreement, and the third one being the will in its commitments. Noticia, which is knowledge of the content of the faith, could be head knowledge. A census, which is intellectual sort of acceptance or assent to the knowledge, could be heart agreement. But then the third one, fiducia, means personal reliance. It has to mean the commitment of the will. The easy illustration of this is the the a trip to California that I am because though I don't deserve it, God loves me. I get to go to California soon. And I can just tell you that at my daughter's apartment, it is 98 degrees and she has a swimming pool. And I'm like going to go from the plane to the pool. It's going to be warm. But I could take these three categories. If I want to take that trip, first, intellectually, I know I got to take an airplane because I ain't going to walk there. I'm not going to longboard my way there. So I know that I have to purchase a plane ticket. But the second one, a census, the heart agreement, let's say that that is, well, I actually go online on my phone or whatever, and I purchase the plane ticket. But that's still not enough. I knew about it, and then I assented to it, and I purchased it, but there's a third step, right? I have to personally rely on that airplane. So I have to go to General Mitchell. I have to walk through the metal detector, set it off because I have 89 cents in my pocket, go back, take the 89 cents out, go through it again, and then I have to put myself on the plane. Intellectual knowledge, hard agreement, but then the commitment of my own person. And so when the demons believe, it's very clear, isn't it? that they have the first. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But they don't have the second. And everything about their will is opposed in the third. James is saying that intellectual assent, or just sort of knowing the facts of the gospel, is a necessary part of saving faith. It's a necessary condition of saving faith. You can't be saved without it, but it is not a sufficient condition of saving faith. You need more than that. So let me, let me bring this kind of to as blunt of a point as James does. I don't share James' uh, predilection for calling his audience fools. Y'all aren't fools. I'm not going to call you that. But I do want to be as clear and as blunt as James is, even if that means that that bluntness uh, shoves 
out of your emotional comfort some things that you were taking emotional comfort in, but that are not true according to God's word. I don't want you to feel emotionally happy. I want you to be on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. So exactly what James is saying, in, our, in a church like ours, in an evangelical, traditional church like ours, exactly what James is saying is the, the sort of decisionism that we bank on. In our context, it's, well, I know that he went to Fort Wilderness and he made a decision for Christ. And that happened four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, 24 years ago. And there has never been any heart assent and there's never been any direction of the will according to the word of God and the will of Jesus Christ. And essentially, James is saying kind of what that song about what the fool believes. Just because you wish that it was so, it doesn't mean it's going to work out. And you can wish that it was something as simple as a believe it, an, a sort of believing and sort of saying, I believe. But James' exact point is, well, the demons can say that they know it, but it is not true. He says only a fool would think that that's genuine saving faith. Faith is personal confidence in God and actual entrustment of my life to God. There's a little... I was never Lutheran, and I never plan on becoming Lutheran. <laughs> but uh, when our kids were little, we went through the, the, Martin Luther rewrote his catechism for children, and, and I find it really beautiful. And in that little catechism for children, this is how Martin Luther defines faith. And it gets right at what James is talking about here. He says to children, faith is not mere knowledge of the stories about Jesus. Saving faith is when we lay hold of Jesus Christ as Savior and we rest ourselves fully in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which always prevails for us in heaven. That's what saving faith is. When we have that kind of faith, when we have that kind of faith, then it always shows up in works of love and in deeds of obedience. I just heard the day before yesterday a wonderful testimony from a missionary and from a disciple that that missionary made. And I want to share that with you as we draw to a close because it captures all of this. I just heard this testimony. So a missionary went to far central eastern Russia. And this missionary planted a church among, of all things, reindeer herders. That, that's, that's what this tribe does for their living. They get the milk and I suppose the meat and the fur and whatever, whatever market value you have in a reindeer. And this is far inland Russia, miles and miles from the coast. And everybody in this tribe has basically spent their whole life in this sort of 60 square mile region of central Russia. And so the missionary leads several of them to Jesus, and then he takes one of the young men that he led to Jesus, and he makes him sort of his primary disciple, his Peter, and he begins to train this young man to become the indigenous pastor of that church when the missionary leaves. 
And before he leaves, he has a chance to take this young disciple to a training conference that's on the coast. This young disciple has never seen the ocean before. And this missionary, church planter, gets to take him to the coast for this training. And as soon as they get there, unbidden, this young disciple who had never seen the ocean before, he just kicks off his shoes, rolls up his pants, and he goes right out into the ocean. And the missionary joins him and says, what do you think of this ocean? And the young disciple has to catch his breath. And then he says, this ocean it's like the love of God. It stretches further into the world than I can ever know. Yet at the same time, every instant, it is rolling toward me and breaking over me. Ever stretching out before me, but ever coming toward me. And the young disciple said, this is how God has loved me. Oh, how I want to live for God. And that missionary said to his young disciple something I could imagine or you could imagine you would say if you were a missionary. The missionary said, I came over here and I wanted nothing more than to head back home and tell everybody how I had taught you. But now, when I go home, the only thing I'm going to be able to tell them is how you had taught me. What James is saying is that faith never works for the love of God, but faith will every time work from the love of God. When I'm standing there and I'm seeing how far the love of God goes, and at the same time, every instant, it's meeting my needs and moving toward me, this is genuine faith which always works by love. This the demons will never have, but this is ours in the gospel that we confess and believe together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear your lambs as they pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for you to deal with our unbelief. Lord Jesus, we have strongholds of doubt, strongholds of self-protection. Lord Jesus, knock them down. Lord Jesus, we confess our sin. We don't want it anymore. We want your love to bury it like a flood. Lord Jesus, hear your lambs as they pray. Lord Jesus, now in the assembly of the saints, we ask you to give us a faith that endures. Give us a hope that overcomes. And give us a love that keeps us focused on you. Lord Jesus, care for your people meet their needs, and answer their prayers with a living and enduring faith. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.